Welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast. I, of course, am Thad Forrester, and I sincerely thank you for listening again this week. I am excited to welcome our guest today, George. He's a 17-year member of the Air Force. He's a, he's a TACP, uh, which stands for Tactical Air Control Party member. So uh, if you're not familiar, just look them up. They're a member of their part of the Air Force Special Operations. Uh, he was also a teammate, teammate of my brother Mark's, and so we talk about his just... I mean, it's his life, why he joined the Air Force, and his love of country and the service that started while he was in school, in high school, and and then uh, talk about his several deployments. He went to Fallujah when there's just a lot of crap going on there, uh, a lot of violence. Um, he was he's been deployed multiple times. I think uh, actually he's been. I know when when he was he was actually with my brother Mark when he was killed, and that was his Georgia's ninth deployment. So he's been around the block a time or two. He's actually with his new role now. He deploys occasionally as well. So just a great uh, selfless American. Uh, he is a friend of our families. We've had him in our home. Uh, he's been banged up, beat up pretty good um, from his career. And it's just amazing to see where he's at now. So he's very inspiring. And uh, he's suffered from a tremendous amount of survivor's guilt. Um, back in 2010 and 11 and maybe beyond but we talk a little bit about that and we're probably going to have to have him back for a part two to talk about more about his recovery uh, while at Walter Reed and uh, thereafter so it is a pleasure to have George with us welcome to the show George thanks for being on Patriot to the Core thanks for having me uh, Thad uh, it's uh, it's good to talk to you and uh, I, I'm kind of excited uh, this is my first podcast so <laughs> Well, um, I've heard you uh, talk about, you know, maybe how you, you know your love of country and and as a young youngster and how much you you know wanted to serve in some way. So that's how I'd like to start out is is really how you gained your love of country. Okay, yeah. So I guess um, so. My name's George. I've I've been in the Air Force for going on 17 years now, and. Uh, I think I'm uh, I'm unique in a way that I, I decided to probably go down that path when I was 16 years old, and uh, subsequently enlisted in the Air Force uh, upon graduating high school, and, and I haven't regretted uh, a moment of it. It's been an incredible journey, and um, I think that uh, kind of what made me look towards uh, pursuing a career and a life in the military was maybe some of the way I was brought up. Um, I'm a son of a police officer from the De- uh, Dearborn, Detroit area. Um, I was surrounded with uh, my dad and his friends and uncles that were firemen and uh, all had military backgrounds. And service was just kind of service to community and, and uh, pride in country was just something that was kind of uh, I was surrounded by as a kid. And I couldn't really, you know, and, and I just grew to appreciate those things. Uh, going into high school, the high school I went to in Livonia, Michigan, offered a uh, an ROTC program for high school kids called JROTC, and uh, I thought it was pretty neat, and I, I always thought the military was interesting, and I signed up for it my freshman year, and uh, the unique thing about it was that, uh, you know, it wasn't what I thought. Initially, I thought it was just going to be people trying to recruit you for the military, and, and that really wasn't it at all. In fact, the uh, the colonel and the senior master sergeant, it was an Air Force ROTC outfit, uh, they'd probably give you a million reasons why you, you shouldn't join the military um, and why you should go to college or a trade school instead. 
they weren't there to recruit kids for the military. They were there to teach kids about leadership and, and teamwork and, and kind of like what responsibility was, which when you're, you know, 14, you don't really understand what those things are necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the things that I did in ROTC was a lot of community service. Um, one of our big missions was to uh, spend a lot of time Sundays and holidays at the Veterans Hospital in downtown Detroit. And no matter what, we always had a face from our ROTC squadron down there every Sunday and at every major holiday. Um, because there's a lot of old vets there that are kind of just there by themselves. They don't eat, they don't have family or, or what have you. It's really easy. You just you go to their room, you get it, they're getting them in their wheelchair, you take them to church and donuts, but you're 14 years old and you're, you're hanging out with people from the greatest generation and, and they're sharing their stories with you and their life with you. And you're, you're getting a lesson in history that you might've only touched on briefly, you know, in a semester of high school history class. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you're really impressionable when you're young and those were pretty powerful, uh, powerful moments. And, you know, seeing my dad as a policeman, I saw him in his uniform almost every day. Um, you know, I took pride in that, and I wanted to be somebody that um, that gave back to his community. And I guess I'm kind of the individual that really cares about the folks that I work with and that I, and family. And I, I just I thought service might have been a good way to start my life out after high school. I wasn't sure if I was going to do a career. Um, my initial plan was probably to maybe do a couple of years, do an enlistment, and then maybe try and be a policeman like my dad back home. But I ended up kind of falling in love with my work. And I think the best thing about it is I, I feel like I work with the best people on the planet. And now that my career's coming to an end here in the next couple of years, um, you know, that, that's the one thing that I know that I, I will probably miss the most is the people that I serve with. And from buddies that have retired before me, that's probably the one thing that, uh, they miss the most as well. And, you know, and, and I've kind of had that camaraderie with folks since I was 14. And I feel pretty fortunate to about that. And that's my basically ROTC and the fact that I grew up as a cop's kid kind of drew me towards uh, the service. So and, you, how did your classmates receive you being either <laughs> in JROTC or wearing a uniform to school? So, I mean, kids are kids. Um, this is the, this is in 1996 when I was a freshman. So, um, you know, there was no war on terrorism things, I guess, you know, from a kid's perspective in high school were relatively calm. It definitely wasn't the cool. move. It wasn't, yeah. it didn't like, didn't make, uh, give me votes to be the prom king or anything along those lines. Um, but I really didn't care. <laughs> You know, like uh, your first semester there, they, you know, you, you do have to wear your uniform once a week. It's part of the course, you know, because you, you got to learn discipline and you got to learn how that thing's supposed to be put together. And and, and you want to wear it with pride because it, it's more than, it's not just your uniform, it's what it represents. And even though you're only 14, the ROTC uniform, they're, they're wearing the same service dress uniform that any anyone on active duty would wear. It's just got a little, you know, different insignias on it. So you don't want to disrespect that and. To me, I just thought that was more important than, you know, I, I did get made fun of from time to time. It didn't matter. I ended up staying in ROTC for my entire four years of high school, and, and I really enjoyed it. 
Um, I think I had a different high school experience than other kids, you know. I did, you know, I was in sports, and I had good groups of friends, but our ROTC unit had a, they had a, a, a flight of kids that were special needs kids, and it wasn't necessary, but, you know, if given the opportunity, you could take a semester and you could be the, the flight leader for that flight. And you had to teach these kids how to march, how to wear their uniform, help them with their schoolwork after school, and, yeah, I guess it's community service, but, I mean it kind of changes your perspective on how you deal with people and mm-hmm. it instills a kind of a level of compassion. I think that a lot of, you know, a lot of people don't get when they're, they're young adults, you yeah. know, especially at that stage in life in high school. And, and at this, you know, I, you, you do something like that and it kind of changes you a little bit. And I did that when I was 16 years old, I spent four months with, with, uh, with those, with my classmates, they were just special needs. They weren't any different. They were good people. They just, they need a little extra help. And it was my job for a few months to make sure that they were taken care of. And, you know, ever since then, I've always kind of had this, I, I like taking care of my buddies. And I think that has, and I think that's probably the root of where that, that comes from. Yeah, I think a lot of people that age don't have many experiences where they're able to serve on a regular basis. You know, they don't. Uh, you know, I think, uh, and there's opportunities out there. You know, there's ROTC uh and different high schools, there's the scouts, there's volunteer opportunities. I just, I don't think it's one of those things that maybe parents or, uh, I, I see it a lot in your community, in the Mormon community, you know, and it's, it's not necessarily a chore, but it's something like, uh, it seems like y'all teach people the value of it, of giving back a little bit. And yeah, that's, that's for sure. I think, I think the world could be a little bit better place if there was a little bit more of that going around. Yeah. So how did you how did you get in? You you joined uh, special operations and in the Air Force. So how did you get into that? And 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 what you know what do you do? What's your job? So I'm, a, I'm an Air Force uh, Tactical Air Control Party member, uh, TACP uh, for short. Um, and that job there is essentially uh, being aligned with Army ground units and coordinating and controlling firepower and, and mo- most importantly air power. Um, you're like the air liaison. Um, I, I didn't get into special operations until I was about seven years into my career because uh, traditionally that job in the Air Force is aligned with uh, your conventional Army units, the infantry divisions, the armor divisions, the airborne division, etc. And a small percentage of the career field uh, does work with special operations. Um, I was and. Uh, and it's just a lot of that really comes down to luck. Like if um, if positions are open, and it, I was fortunate enough to where positions were becoming open, and I, a selection came up, I was able to go to the selection and the recruiting event, and it just worked out to where I was finishing up my time at an assignment in Hawaii, um, and then I ended up uh, at Fort Bragg back in uh, 2010. Or I'm sorry, 2008. And I've been doing special operations since then, full time. And prior to that, I had augmented. Uh, since I've been augmenting uh, over in Afghanistan since 2007. Is the for attack P? Do you go through the same pipeline that controllers do? Uh, no, we don't. Um, it's it is different because we we get aligned right off of uh, graduation from technical school to conventional army forces. So you don't need all of those schools. You're necessarily, 
uh, all that training. Um, when guys are recruited and go through their assessments to go into Air Force Special Operations, then there's like a there's another pipeline they'll go through the that, uh, the training in Florida that your brother went through for a few months to to catch up with the I guess their counterparts they'd be working with the combat controllers uh, and some of the tactical skills. But we, we kind of hire guys that are a little bit more senior and, and typically have some experience. So, uh, it, it, and then uh, some of the schools like uh, Free Fall School, if a tactic doesn't already have it, uh, they, they usually get those later on, you know, uh, based off of the mission and, and if they need them to have it or not. Okay. I, I keep thinking about just, you know, still going through the training, and I'm sure it's difficult and you know, you know, not just anybody can do it. I mean, how did you get through the training to become a attack P? Um, just kind of being stubborn, you know, young and uh, being young helps because I don't think I, <laughs> I'd have as much fun now at <laughs> 35 and with all these miles on me. But uh, <laughs> just being young uh, and uh, and super motivated and just really excited to just be part of the military, like. You know, you don't really realize that going and hiking 20 miles isn't necessarily bad for you because you got a rucksack on and you're, you're running around the woods at night. So in a way, you think it's kind of cool. But uh, <laughs> yeah. and and you just got you, you have good buddies along the way, just like buddies of mine that are controllers and pararescue men. They all have very good friends from their perspective pipelines that you know that you, you make those friendships and, and those buddies help kind of keep you motivated. And then usually everyone that kind of gets to the level where I'm at where we're working they've got this internal drive that is uh it's pretty incredible like they're they're the kind of folks that um if they can't do something they're going to learn how to do it and then they're going to learn how to do it and try and be the best at it you know what I mean oh yeah that's definitely common and that and that's the one thing I love the best is just surrounding myself with people like that so it's it's almost impossible to get complacent (laughs) because if you do you might lose your job yeah well, uh, I'd like let's talk about some of those uh, miles on your aging body. Uh, <laughs> I know, uh, so I, I, you've deployed multiple times, to, and I know that you went to you were in Fallujah um, when it was just when it was just very active there. So, yeah. I mean, what was that like? And what year was that? I can't remember. Was it 04? Uh, that was in 2004. Okay, um, that was kind of when the insurgency in Iraq was getting pretty pretty large. Um, and, you know, Fallujah was turning into a big problem area. I, I, you know, I can't remember all this. I was still pretty young then, too. You know, I was only in my early 20s. Um, but uh, I, I wasn't in the middle of Fallujah. I wasn't, I wasn't part of the main effort, per se. Uh, I was more on the cordon element. But it just it, the city itself isn't very large. And uh, the amount of firepower, just U.S. firepower, U.S. forces on the ground committed to that fight. It, it almost looked like something out of a, a modern warfare video game commercial that you'd probably see today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a nasty fight. It was definitely a necessary fight. Um, and then uh, and it, it was pretty – but I was also, you know, it, I don't know. It's kind of hard to explain, to be honest with you. Um, chaos, <laughs> controlled chaos. Um Every unit uh, that had a that had a piece of that pie, you know, they had their lanes. Um, the amount of aircraft over a tight airspace overhead was just incredible. Uh, I, I think it's pretty incredible to get, and it's funny because the guys managing all that chaos, that that airspace control, like, I, I, fortunately, I wasn't one of them. Um, 
but uh, it was it was just weird. It was like you had your you had your small your your small sector of town. I was like more on the cordine element, and uh, you just you just kept pushing through to each phase line, and and uh, and then to pretty much secure the city. Um, the Marines were the heaviest fighting element in there, uh, for sure. Um, but yeah, man, I just it was it was just kind of like controlled chaos. So Fallujah, I'm guessing it's a pretty big city, and you had the insurgents just spread all throughout amongst also non-enemies. Is that well? How it's it kind of like, like I said, it's kind of like I said, I wasn't in the heart of it, but it's like what you see maybe today with ISIS and Raqqa, like on we see in the news. Um, there wasn't a, and like I said, I can't remember the political or the. The reasons why there wasn't a big military footprint in Fallujah per se; they were more on the outskirts of Fallujah, um, and it kind of allowed Al Qaeda and, and other other groups that were um, aligned with them to pretty much just dig in. Um, so when the guys did take Fallujah, they had to clear it house to house. They had to; they literally had to clear every section of the city. But when they did come in contact with the enemy, they were coming in contact with a pretty heavily entrenched, well-defended enemy. You know, it was a, so it was a very technical fight. You know, for the infantrymen, for special ops guys on the ground, for everybody involved, and, and then you still had civilians kind of in the mix as well, because um, not everyone could have gotten out of town, even though you know they had made attempts to let people know, hey, get out of town. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you still have civilians in that mix as well, which further complicates things. So, and that's, that was kind of near the, that was kind of in the beginning of the real, uh, you know, when the insurgency was really starting to go full bore, like in Iraq. And to be honest with you, like, it was still kind of like the very beginning of the U.S. kind of, uh, U.S. military as a whole becoming like a counterinsurgency force. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of like lessons learned and there was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, it was definitely a tough fight, you know. You're you're fighting a bunch of trenched in insurgents with a huge ground force and armored vehicles and a bunch of air support, and you're trying not to hurt, you know, civilians. So. Yeah, I mean, we lost a lot of guys in Iraq. Mm. Yes, they, yes, we did. Um, and I think I think the Marines took the heaviest toll there in Fallujah. They were they were pretty they were the main effort. Um, and uh, yeah, man, it was. I, so I, I mean, yeah, I, I got I got zapped at a few times while I was there, but I was more on a cordon element, um, and just kind of you know I, I was really more of a spectator, I think, but um, I wasn't quite as in the weeds as some of the other guys. But it was definitely an eye-opening experience. It, I've never experienced anything like it uh, in the rest of my years in the military, uh, fighting-wise, probably until. Uh, 2010 in my in my time with Mark uh, in that Choo Choo Valley. Yeah, so six years later from Fallujah, you're in Aruzgan and at Fob Cobra, and I mean, and I may be skipping something that you want to talk about, George. If so, then talk about it. But if not, yeah, I, what was what was it like in Aruzgan, and maybe we can get to, you know, how you knew Mark and what it was like those last few days. So before Afghanistan, so that that trip. Uh, to Afghanistan, where I I had worked with Mark. Um, that was at that time my ninth deployment. That was going to be my ninth deployment. So uh, I'd been around uh, quite a bit. 
from pretty my first deployment was the invasion into Iraq, and then that was going to be my ninth one in 2010. Uh, but prior to that, uh, I had known Mark briefly at the uh, at the 21st STS Squadron as a uh, I was one of my main roles there was training new guys uh, coming in from the pipeline, like your brother at the time, uh, to be JTACs, Joint Terminal Air Attack Controllers, um, to then go out into the field. So I spent a little bit of time essentially getting your brother trained up and certified to do that mission, which he was going to then end up doing on his his first deployment, which was to uh, Aruzgat. And uh, Mark had... He was kind of in a weird spot, like, so we try and deploy as a unit, but sometimes they need bodies, so Mark was kind of filling a spot, so he was in between squadrons, I don't know if you remember that or not, so Mark was there for three months before I got there, yeah, Uh uh-huh, so Mark Mark was there, and I mean, Aruzgan's a very difficult place to fight, it's a very difficult place to operate, there's a lot of very interesting dynamics there, not just what the the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and other extremist groups, but also, you know, just the, the tribal dynamics. And, you know, when you're working there, you, you you need to navigate the human terrain just as much as, you know, accommodate and, you know, fix and finish the enemy, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So um, they typically wouldn't send guys that were as young as Mark out that way. But thank Hurton for numbers. And, and the thing is, Mark was just really good at his craft and uh, and I'm not saying that to be nice and I, and I don't say that uh, sparingly he was he was beyond exceptional I think I think a lot of that has to do with he wasn't the he wasn't the 19 year old kid who enlisted out of high school like me um, he had you know he had, he had school he, he had done a, a mission correct um, yeah and uh, he had some life experience before coming in so he wasn't you know when we'd go to Las Vegas to do training he wasn't so much enamored with the fact that he's in Las Vegas, like maybe some a young 20-year-old who's you know, his first time away from home, he's more interested in doing his homework and, and getting ready to, to plan for his training. But he just wanted to, to train, get certified, make sure he was good at his craft, and then get out the door and, and, uh, and then uh, take the fight to the enemy. And uh, me and the other guys in the training section who, we you know, we noticed that and when leadership was asking, hey, I don't have any sand where, you know, we go and we get assigned to, to locations. But, you know, like, hey, like, out of all these these guys going on their first deployment, you know, if, if we had to put a, a newer face with a more complicated area, you know, whether it's because of the enemy or politics or whatever, you know, who's, who's the most, who's the most, like, who's the best guy, who's the most mature? And Mark was, you know, unanimous, unanimously at that group of guys at the top of his list. Um, and then uh, they needed a, a body at, at Cobra, which is a very difficult place, and, and everyone felt confident, myself included, that Mark would do well there. Uh, plus, he was also going to be working with a, another experienced controller, so he wouldn't be necessarily left there you know, to make all these decisions on his own. But, um, you know, you've heard all the stories, and prior to me deploying, uh, reading all the situation reports and all that, I found out I was going to be going to to that fire base and I'll be working with Mark uh, for his last three months there, the first three months of my deployment. And uh, I mean, he was just exceptional. He was, everything was, he didn't do anything wrong. He got to the point where 
use a fire and forget weapon system. He the the, the teams on the ground trusted him. His teammate uh, trusted him. Uh, and I, you know, having seen him in training, I had all the confidence in the world to work with him. And you know, you're you're not you're pretty switched on to that that fire base. It's a it's a nasty area in Afghanistan. Uh, Aruzgan used to be a, a, from what I was told, kind of like a vacation area before the uh, the U.S. invasion for like high-ranking uh, Taliban members. There's family ties there with them, and that fire base historically is just they're they're always getting in very very nasty gun battles with the Taliban, and sometimes very close to home. Um, you know, very close to home uh, where you're camped out at. So. Uh, I found out I was going there. I was pretty excited because I was going to get to go execute my craft. Uh, I knew I was going to be working with a really scored away airman, uh, your brother. And uh, I had a feeling it was going to be a, a pretty worthwhile trip. Um, so what was and, it like? What was the, well, uh, maybe go ahead, George. I don't want to interrupt you. I was, no, no, go ahead. Ask your questions. What, what was it like there? Um, I mean, we know... Uh, Everyone listening to this knows Mark was killed on 29 September 2010, but what was that last mission like? Because y'all were together. Yep, so uh, me and Mark had been together a couple of times, man. Um, even, like, uh, I, that deployment ended pretty short for me. I got there in uh, early August, and as you know, I was medevaced out of there uh, in early October, just a few days um, after Mark had been killed. Um, and uh, me and Mark had been on a couple of good missions together. I had, sometimes my team and me would sit QR, uh, quick reaction force for Mark's team while they were out, and, and vice versa. And sometimes we'd we'd have to go out together. Um, and uh, so going into that last mission was actually quite a large mission. Um, you covered it a little bit in your in your book um, to clear out that valley. And uh, that went all the way from Tarrant out all the way up to where our fire base was, and it was big. I mean, there was there was a lot of people involved. We were the we were kind of like the northern element of it. And uh, essentially, what kind of happened was, as everyone started going into this huge valley to, to clear out the Taliban, they all kind of just started heading north, <laughs> and uh, they kind of ran into us. And uh, it was just it was a couple of days of just really nasty fighting so um the first day which is the 28th and uh september 28th and i've got a i think you've got one too i got that photo taken of me and mark prior to kicking off oh yeah early in the morning yep early in the morning it's a picture of us we knew it was going to be we knew it was going to be nasty we knew we were going to be we wanted kind of a because mark was kind of a joker man and and people that know me know i am too and and you kind of, you're, you're afraid because you know what's coming, but you're also, you know, you trust your training, you trust your teammates. And, uh, you know, we're like, all right, let's get this before picture and we're going to do an after picture because we're expecting probably to be in this valley for like three to five days. And um, so we're like, yeah, that'd be kind of funny, right? We'll do it before and we're expecting, you know, <laughs> some crazy after picture where we're just covered in mud and just looking crushed. Um, so, and I'm actually grateful that I took that picture because it kind of helps me get through my worst days. Um, but, uh, so the first day of that fight, um, 
we had we dropped some dismounts off, and I was with the the dismounted element, and basically we we needed to get a purchase into into the valley uh, to allow the the armored Humvees make sure that they could get a secure entrance in, and then we were going to have kind of like an L shape going through the valley with uh, one leg of the L, all armored Humvees, and the other leg of the L dismounts clearing through the, the thick vegetation in the villages and the, and the houses. So on the first day, um, I was in the, uh, and this is kind of the neat thing about working with Mark. So I was with the, uh, I was in the vegetation with the dismounts and we were working on getting the purchase for the vehicles. In. And <clears throat> I mean, we didn't, we weren't in there very long and then it just, you know, it just blew up. But being in the in the woods, you're down in the group called the green zone. You couldn't really see where the enemy fire was coming from. You could tell it was close. You could tell they didn't quite know where you were, so you couldn't really engage them. And then uh, when we finally got to a point where we could we could make out at least where we 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 knew they were, we just couldn't see them pinpointedly. Then uh, then I was able to kind of coordinate with Mark, and he was on the high ground with the trucks and uh, one of the team sergeants in the mortar. And Mark was helping uh, guide the mortar rounds onto those guys, which is kind of cool. Because um, typically we, you, you don't really always have an extra special tactics buddy with you. You know, you, usually it's you doing that on your own. Where this now, I'm I'm kind of like helping Mark. He has a better vantage point. I could pop some smoke. He can see. I let him know where we're at. And let him know where the enemy's at, and then I could trust him to uh, to drop mortars down. And that was the first time Mark dropped fires close to my position on that fight and there'd be another time a little bit later in the day um but he never skipped a beat i always knew he had my back and he was always on the radio um once we kind of like pushed through that first phase line and then we could take a knee and let the uh let the trucks get in and we had our whole kind of formation set up to start our clearance and it was just it was kind of just a knockout drag out fight (laughs) You know, every hundred meters, you know, we we're just—you had to fight for every hundred meters. So you were firing your weapons a lot as well, as well as oh, air absolutely. power. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. We absolutely were. Um, and uh, and the neat thing was uh, the way we did our mission planning with me and Mark is we knew there was going to be some serious limitations. And when you're a JTAC, the most important thing is to really know where your friendlies are at. Um, and in combat, and that's one of those things that, you know, Mark was very good at. He, he showed that in his training, he, and he executed it flawlessly over the course of his deployment. Combat gets crazy, and it's, and it's very hard to keep track of where all the good guys are at. And when you're getting ready to drop bombs, oftentimes danger close. Like, the last thing you want to do is incapacitate or kill friendlies with friendly bombs, you know? So the way we had it set up was where one of us would be in the trucks along that axis of the L, and then one of us would be at the far end of the uh, the dismount so that we could have kind of along that river. I think you've seen the map mm-hmm. as we're clearing this valley north to south. So Mark's on the west side, and I'm way on the uh, the east side near the river as we're, we're making our way down. Between the two of us, even, even though we couldn't see everybody, um, I could see the the guys he couldn't see, and he could see the guys I couldn't see. So it was kind of interesting. So between the two of us, like, 
we didn't have to bother the commander a whole lot. We we knew where everyone was at. So when when either myself or Mark had a weapon solution, whether it was a mortar system or tech helicopters or, or A10s, like they, they they knew we we knew what we were talking about, and we could we didn't have to waste a lot of their time. We could say, hey, here's here's the solution to fix this problem. Uh, I just need your initials, and and we'll, and we'll rock and roll. Um, so as that day dragged on, we kind of had a little bit of a, a wane in the fighting. And I remember being in a compound, and uh, <clears throat> and it was kind of quiet. As me and Mark were kind of going back and forth, we were both on our airnet talking with one of the A10 pilots about Alabama football, and he ended. You know, I'm from Michigan, so I was talking about Michigan <laughs> football, and he was from I can't remember what state. We were all from different states. We're all on the radio. You develop these these funny relationships with pilots when you're a JTAC. And, uh, and, you know, Mark, he's insane about Alabama football, so he just wasn't letting anyone get a word in. <clears throat> and uh, and the next thing I know, just all hell broke loose again. And uh, the walls on the, the compound that I was hunkered down in just started getting chewed up by all kinds of enemy fire, RPGs. And I, I remember getting a peek over the wall to try and see where it's coming from. Mark was a little bit behind me in the truck, but he could see my compound because he was on an elevated position. And I couldn't see where the bad guys were shooting from. They were very close, though. He could see a lot of the, I guess he could see a lot of uh, their movement, the way the trees were. And uh, he ended up calling in a danger close gun run to my position. <laughs> so that was pretty interesting. That was definitely a first for me to have, you know, as the J, is the senior JTEC, to have someone call it a danger close gun run on my position. <laughs> um, you know, because the bad guys were only maybe like, 30 meters away. I just, I couldn't see him uh, to, to really get a good talk on. The aircraft couldn't see him, but Mark was able to do it. I threw some smoke out there for him, and he was able to get a talk on off the smoke, because once again, he knew where I was at, and he could see us. I just, I gave him the, the, the final heads up on where all of us were on the front, and then he worked the strike. Was this with the Apaches? Uh, no, that came later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this was with A-10. A-10, yep. okay. Yeah. And then uh, the Apaches weren't weren't far behind. That was a that was a that was a little bit later in the day. That was towards the end of the day. Okay. Similar situation. I, I couldn't see them. Uh, Mark couldn't see us. He could see the target. He couldn't see us. I could. I knew where we were, but I couldn't see the target. So we each had a very vital piece of the equation to for uh, close air support to happen. Um, but we worked really well together, even though it was something we never really rehearsed. It ended up being something that. Uh, after that deployment, when I got out of the hospital and got back into training guys that, you know, we kind of started instituting because sometimes guys work with another combat controller or attack piece. So uh, training guys on how to, like, you know, communicate and, and, and not try and fight over who gets to say cleared hot, but just make sure the information is very fluid. It was something me and Mark never rehearsed, never even thought of it, to be honest with you. And uh, when it came go time, like, it just it just happened very smoothly and uh, – and I think it was just me and him worked really well together. We really did. Well, and I know that next day you got injured or you got a concussion. Yeah. So the next day we were able to the, – the t- in that area they typically didn't like to fight at night. And we have been scrapping all day. Um, so we had we had quite a bit of assets overhead. Me and Mark took turns. You know, we used an AC-130 for security. But, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about the next day. And uh, 
we're deciding now kind of uh now that we've got the the trucks and we can maneuver the, the it's opening up a little more we're gonna we're gonna maneuver further ahead with the trucks uh and then the, try and use the trucks to draw fire and then fix and shoot uh, engage the enemy with the trucks since they're armored they have more weapons and uh and then and then give the uh, the guys on the ground the the dismounted troops some some time to move up so me and mark had decided that uh um we're kind of going back and forth about it, and uh, we decided that I was gonna, I was gonna be the guy in the vehicle. Um, and the reason why I wanted to push for that is a, uh, I was the senior guy of the two of us, and I knew that the trucks were gonna get chewed up. And it wasn't that I didn't think Mark would be able to do his job well. I just felt like I wasn't about to put an E4 in a position that I wasn't, I wasn't gonna go into. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, uh, I was the E6. He's the he's my E4 teammate. I'm not gonna put him in a worse situation than me. That's that, that I felt like that just that was the wrong call. Um, and for the most part, I was correct. So this is going into the day of uh, the 29th. Um, we kind of get our morning started, kind of slow, and then uh, and we once we push the trucks to the towards the next phase line, that's when it really heats up again. And the assessment was correct. We just started getting smashed. Uh, mortar rounds falling on top of our heads uh, and uh, a lot of heavy machine gun fire. And we're, we're able to suppress and, and engage them and, and work some strikes from the trucks to allow the uh, the dismounts to then move up. So Mark's element, they were able to move up. The enemy is kind of consumed with us and the vehicles, keeping their head down. They let us know when they get to their limit of advance, we'll shift fire, and they would kind of clean up clean up the enemy. So this is where you're getting at with the, the helos. The next day, uh, Mark's in the woods. Uh, we get to that first phase line. Uh, those guys move up to start shooting at the enemy. They get a little bit pinned down. Mark, he can't see the enemy. I can see where the enemy's at, but I can't see where Mark and the friendlies are at. So we're just kind of in reverse roles uh, as we were the day prior. Um, and we're able to work. Uh, I was able to work the Apache fires that way. And we, we kind of had a good thing going, but the trucks were definitely getting chewed up. One guy who passed away later in the rotation, Tony, he was already shot in the leg at that point. Um, and we pushed a little bit further towards the next phase line, and then we just kind of – we kind of – we we found kind of their little hornet's nest and where they were really dug in. So as the trucks are scrapping, uh, trying to, you know, open up – some uh, some breathing room for the guys uh, on dismount. That's when I ended up getting injured. I had a 82 millimeter. I was in the well, I was in a, a 50 caliber uh, turret on the truck and had an 82 millimeter uh, mortar land on a wall uh, towards my side. Um, fortunately, the the chicken plate, which is just a piece of armor in front of the 50 cal that I was using. Took most of the blast, took most of the shrapnel. I ended up getting knocked uh, unconscious, um, waking up inside the truck with some shrapnel in my arm, in my hands, and uh, just kind of confused as what was going on. And I like, kind of a weird thing being dazed like that. Like I actually remember in my in my right ear, I, we we're as a JTAG, I have two radios. I have one to talk to the team and another radio to talk to the airplanes. So me and Mark and all the aircraft are on one radio net. And in my right ear, I just hear, I hear Mark 
calling my call sign because he saw the whole thing and he's just like he thought my truck blew up and uh and he, yeah i just remember hearing like hey this is jack 28 george you all right buddy you all right and then he stopped using call signs and hey george 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 it's mark are you up and I kind of like woke up like what's going on and then one of the one of the team guys like dude get back up there you <laughs> like calling some air support and uh mark uh i got back on the up on the net told mark i was all right and uh he helped me fix fix where the uh the bad guys were at and i worked a, another airstrike um so i definitely i definitely put myself in the position to take the most beating but as we continue to move forward um and mark was continuing to clear buildings you know there's that uh it's it's war you know um and uh one of the medics is Mark and a medic, and I believe the, the team sergeant were clearing a building. Uh, the medic was killed. I think he was the, correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, you know the story as well, but he was the last guy going into the building uh, after Mark. It's hard to say. I mean, he was outside. I, I don't know. I can't figure that out, George. Yeah, I can't either. Uh, but uh, one of the teammates was shot and killed. Um and what we know is that Mark was laying down suppressive fire um, to find the shooter and during an attempt to recover teammate, because Mark didn't know. I mean, he just knew a guy was down. He didn't know he was dead. Um, that's when uh, Mark was shot, uh, recovering uh, Calvin. Um, and what we know about the bullet is that uh, it's, uh, it hit the side of his plate and split in half, and I believe the other half went into his heart. Um, so when that fighting broke out, um, I was a little bit further down the road, and uh, I heard Mark talking to the helos. He, he was working the helos on his problem and, uh, and, and trying to work through it, but I could tell that uh, he was in a bind because it was probably the only time um, I heard some concern or... A, I don't want to say panic, but like it was, it was very rare to hear Mark sound stressed out on the radio. Uh-huh. You could, you could tell by the tone in his voice that he was in a jam. Um, I remember like, Hey man, I, we got to talk to those guys. Comms weren't that we started having comm issues with those guys on the ground. Like, Hey man, we got to try and get these trucks back there. We're a little bit, we're a little bit ahead. Um, Mark's, Mark's having issues. He's trying to talk the, the helicopters on to someone shooting at him, saying that he's pretty much pinned down. And uh, once that call went out, uh, they had gotten a bit spread out on the ground. So other other team guys that were dismounted were trying to make their way to his position, uh, like Ryan. I know you met Ryan. Mm-hmm. Talk to him. Um, so I don't. All I know is, uh, and then I heard the uh, the, the birds uh, at that point. I put the rest of the cast stack over to Mark on his net, uh, or on the net. I was like, hey, you guys are going to take all, give them the, the area they were at, had the helos, talk the, the fixed wing on too to get more eyes in the sky to help help Mark out. And, and then uh, Mark started talking to him a little bit, and then and then all of a sudden I just I stopped hearing Mark on the radio, and I kept hearing the pilots calling his call sign over and over again, and I knew at that point something had happened. George, one thing I've wanted to ask is uh, when you're hearing all this on the radio, 
Is there a lot of gunfire? Is it Mark's gunfire? Can you hear the enemy shooting? I mean, there there was a lot of sporadic gunfire. Um, even while it was happening, I had an RPG zip over my head. Um, it was it was still a very chaotic environment. Um, I think what had happened was, in my honest opinion, I think it, you know I I don't think it was a, necessarily a large force that they had encountered. Um, I think it was a, a, a relatively small force that was able to stay hidden and, yeah. and just kind of wait to attack. Um, but there was, I mean, there was gunfire. It was hard to, I couldn't tell you who was shooting what necessarily. I could tell you the things I was shooting at. I was actively engaged in close targets. Um, everyone was shooting at everything. Uh, uh, there was a lot of bad guys in that valley. Um, so once I told the, uh, I told the guys in the trucks, I was like, hey, man, Mark's off the radio. I think he's hurt. Something's wrong. Their guys weren't answering the radio either. Calvin wasn't answering the radio. So then we, we tried to reconsolidate forces and push as much as we could to their position. And then that's when, uh, not long after that is when one of the guys, I can't remember who, might have been Ryan, uh, came up on the radio and told us that we had the two eagles down, Mark and Calvin. So... What was your reaction? It's kind of hard to say. Um, your adrenaline is so amped. You were just in the fight. I remember just feeling completely heartbroken and helpless, which is a feeling you, I'm not accustomed to feeling. And uh, I didn't know who you were, but I could only think about what I'm going to say to his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the guys was, I, I think I was kind of shell-shocked from it plus I had the, some injuries and a concussion so one of the guys saw I was just like staring off into space if you will uh, kind of slapped me and said hey dude you gotta snap out of it I was like alright I'm back in the fight um, started to work our uh Kilo to get uh, our two heroes out of there, which we couldn't do until until we we had a, a relatively secure HLZ. So we had to we had to make sure we we at least fought them back enough to the bad guys back enough to where we could secure an HLZ to get the bodies out. Um, that night, I mean, the medic told me not to sleep because I was pretty banged up um, with a head injury. I ended up taking a go pill and. Staying up all night, talking to airplanes, feeling just nauseous, probably because of a concussion, mostly probably because I just lost my teammates. Um, uh, the next morning, uh, we, were, we were getting reinforced. So the headquarters element was uh, grabbing another team, and, and they were coming up to help reinforce us to finish clearing the valley out. Um, another uh, An Army JTAC showed up really squared away guy. Um, I kind of got him switched on to, to the battle plan. I stayed up all night uh, planning and coordinating the fires for the next day. Um, and then we just, we really took it to him. I had a lot, I, probably because we, we took such a beating that day that, uh, um, I don't know, the command, I mean, we had a lot of, we, we, we killed a lot of bad guys with some air support the next day. Um we were able to pretty much keep a wall of fire in front of us with A-10s and Apaches and mortars. 
as, uh, as we were able to clear through to our final objective. And then uh, after that final objective was secured, um, myself and Tony, he passed away later on on that trip, um, we, we you know, we needed to get medevaced. He had a bullet in his leg, and I was banged up and had shrapnel, and we ended up driving all the way back to the fire base um, with some local uh, Afghan partners and coordinated our medevac back to Tarrant Cow. Um, and also there was going to be a, a memorial service that evening for, uh, for our guys. So the first thing I did... Right when I went back to that base, I hadn't slept in two days. Um, I took, I had a bag of the body armor. We had bags of body armor and all the, the sensitive items for for both guy, for Mark and Calvin. I just I went into Mark's room and I just raided it with anything because <clears throat> I knew I was going to see uh, our commander there, and I I just raided it like anything I could think of that you would possibly want. Hats, patches. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember everything I gave you because my injuries subsequently after that day, like I have a little bit of amnesia from it, but I just, I remember the finding the flag in his body armor with the bullet still in it. Um, I just, I, I needed to give you guys something. I, yeah. I can't remember everything it was. I just, I took everything out of his room that I think that maybe you would his family would think was important to bring with me. Absolutely. It all was. Yeah, we, you got us a lot. And the flag came very quickly. Very Good. quickly. Quicker yes. than everything else. Yeah, that's right. I didn't find that until uh, till after I got back. We were just going through stuff. Um, well, that was a doozy. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, man, so... Well, I, I, if there's something else, George, that's important, yeah, share it. And I know that you... Just for sake of time, I know you got um, you got injured pretty severely just a few weeks later, or maybe a week or two, two later. Days. And you okay, a few, a few days, days later, you found yourself back in the states at Walter Reed. Yeah. I mean, what happened? What happened to you? Well, uh, the docs uh, they, they pulled you know the the nasty stuff, the nasty shrapnel on my arms and hands, and said I had a concussion. I asked if I could go back to the team. Um, I had, I, I just had a blood vengeance, man. I was out for blood. Um, I wanted to get back. All I wanted to do was get back to the fight. Um, and, uh, they said, all right, no, you can go. It's up to you. Just don't hit your head. <laughs> and then, uh, I don't know all the details, man. It's so fuzzy. Um, essentially I was in a Humvee on some pretty janky terrain and the ground kind of went out from us and I was in the very back of it on the machine gun and it was a rollover and that truck I mean we rolled down the hill and it rolled over me a few times and I woke up I guess a couple days later and in uh, in, uh, Kandahar not knowing what happened and I had shattered my hip broke a bunch of bones in my back broke my shoulder and just had a ridiculous uh, traumatic brain injury. Just a very, I mean, I, I had severe memory loss for a long time. Um, and I was on my way to Walter Reed where I'd spent the next nearly seven months trying to recover, you know, facing the possible med board. And I was like, well, what do I got to do to stay in? What do I got to do to stay in? 
and uh, and I just I spent the next two years after that uh, in intensive rehab. I'm incredibly grateful for my leadership and the Air Force for allowing me that opportunity instead of just medically retiring me and letting me get back to active duty because this is what I love to do. Um, it really is. And, uh, but it, it took a lot. It wasn't just my body. Um, my heart, my soul were broken. I had a chaplain tell me once that like a good warrior, the three pillars that make a warrior, a good warrior, um, is, is mind, his body and his soul. And, uh, at the time, I, you know, I was like, all right, you're an Air Force chaplain. You know, what do you know about being a warrior? And I found myself in a position where all three of those were broken uh, pretty severely. Um, I would have nightmares about about losing Mark. I, I harbored a lot of guilt for a long time. The day I came and met your parents and your family the first time, I part once I saw the sign for Haleyville, I pulled over on the side of the road and cried for about an hour before I could even get myself together to come to your house. Um, the first time I met you guys. Yeah, uh, that was that was about seven months after Mark yeah. was killed. Yep. Yeah. I. Uh, so this is something that it's tough to share, but I share it openly, especially with young service members. Um, that deployment I was on, it was my it was my ninth trip overseas. I'd seen a lot of blood and guts. I'd buried a lot of friends. And it's never easy. And I don't want people to think that it is. But nothing impacted me the way it did when Mark died. And I think the reason is because that was the first time uh, a friend was no kidding my responsibility. And... Uh, and I thought I had PTSD from it, and I didn't. And uh, I'm glad I went and seeked help. I really am. I, I told my commander when I got um, out of Walter Reed that, like, I'm on the track physically to getting better, but I need to I need to work through some demons. And um, they were really open to that. It didn't it didn't hamstring my career. Um, and what it was was I was dealing with a severe case of uh, survivor's guilt, which is a real thing. And the thing is, the Air Force taught me to do a lot of stuff, but it didn't tell me how to deal with something like that. And I probably spent a good six months with people that knew what they were doing to help me work through that. And I'm grateful for it because I think about Mark every day. That's the truth. I'll probably think of him every day until the day I die. Um, but in the beginning stages of that grieving process, the thought of Mark was something that would just collapse me and put me into a very dark place. And being able to work through that survivor's guilt is the reason why I'm on active duty today. Because when I I was able to to turn the, the memory of my time with Mark and our service together into something that inspires me, <clears throat> uh, and yes, I am sad. On the anniversary, it's a bad day for me. Um, but for the most part, whenever I think about Mark and people who knew Mark, who will attest to this, and who are blessed to know Mark much longer than I ever did, he was one of the most positive forces in life. Uh, um, and I want, and 
I feel like if I stay driven to be a good person, do good things, um, never give up, that um, I'm honoring him. Um, so the reason why I'm probably still here today and the reason why I'm probably still going to be able to finish out my career is because uh, Mark, Mark is my ghost, but he is a ghost that drives me in the most positive way ever. Um, and I want to share that because there are a lot of vets out there. There's a lot of guys who seen heartache and it could be on the battlefield. It could be at home. You know, people lose loved ones all the time. And, you know, to try and put things in perspective to, to live, to honor their memories is much different than, than trying to always think about what you couldn't control. And, that was easier said than done. I can tell you that. It takes work, but uh, I'm just I'm very grateful and blessed that I was able to to get through that and to share that. Like Mark, he's the most important person to me today, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, you're a fighter. You were before the, these injuries and before Mark's death, and you are you know, have been since, and you've been a blessing to our family and, and, and to this great nation to, and to the, to the young men that you serve, you know, that you uh, oversee in the Air Force and who, who you've trained and, and taught and prepared to go to war. I mean, they're, they're blessed to have learned from you. I, I can't really say any more than really what you've said, George, that we've only really scratched the surface. And I know we could talk about we could talk about the, the trials on your, you know, with your family life, and and uh, I know you know you got divorced, but you know fortunately you're you know, you're happily married now, and and uh, I don't know, it's just I really appreciate you being on the show. Is there anything in closing that you'd like to say? No, just um, thanks for giving me the opportunity to to share that, and that, you know, hopefully it helps somebody. You know, I know that's what Mark would want. You know. Um, I, I'm pretty open when I talk to guys about some of those things. It's hard to to be a strong person, to be a fighter, and to find yourself where you are maybe out of control and you need help. And it's okay to ask for it. And you'll actually end. Up, I think you end up being a stronger person with just a much broader perspective once you get through. Um, and like I said, Mark's uh, Mark's my hero, and he always will be. And I, I honestly feel that every good thing I have in life to this day is because uh, he pushes. I feel him pushing me. Um, he's who I think about when I when I feel I can't do something. So. Well, thanks for sharing it and for being open and and uh, it's it's been a, an honor to have you on here. And hang on for a minute, George, while I wrap it up. But. Uh, for those listeners, uh, if you've listened here to the end, then you must have enjoyed it, and I'm glad you did. I hope you did. Uh, please go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast and share it. Uh, it's been great hearing from George today, and not only about his career, but how he went through some, you know, the, 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 some trials and, and physical injuries and emotional injuries, and and it's it was kind of cool to hear about the last his la- the last two days that he was with Mark before he was killed. So. Till next time.